Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Since the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen an outpouring of interest on the part of data scientists and AI practitioners wanting to make a contribution. At the same time, some of the resulting efforts have been criticized for promoting the spread of misinformation or uh, just being disconnected from the applicable domain knowledge. The question that we're here to address today is how can data scientists get involved and do so in a responsible manner? And I've got a great panel lined up to help us do that. Uh, Before we dive in, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, We really, really want to ensure that this is an interactive discussion. Uh, So your comments, whether you're viewing on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter, are visible uh, to me, and I'll relay them to uh, our panel. Uh, And it's really my sincere hope that you will help drive a good part of the discussion today. Next, this is the first of uh, many discussions that we'll be bringing you on a wide range of topics. Uh, To be notified when we schedule future discussions, please just follow or subscribe to us on whatever channel you are watching right now. Before introducing our panelists, I'd like to send a shout out to our friends at IBM for their huge support of uh, what we're doing here at Twimble generally and this discussion in particular. IBM has been at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus. Through their leadership in the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium, they've helped bring together the federal government and industry and academic leaders in support of COVID-19 research. In addition, they're bringing together trusted data from governments, the World Health Organization, and the CDC to provide detailed virus tracking on the Weather Channel. And they're offering free access to Watson Assistant to respond to common COVID-19 related questions. Uh, For more information on these resources and links to dig in deeper, as well as to learn how you can get 30 days of free Coursera access when you join the IBM data science community, visit the resource page for this program, twimmelaicom slash RDSCOVID. With that said, I am really excited to introduce myself and our panelists for this discussion. I'm Sam Charrington, founder of Twimmel and host of the Twimmel AI podcast. Rex Douglas is a computational social scientist and director of the Machine Learning for Social Science Lab, MSSL, at the Center for Peace and Security Studies at the University of San Diego. Rex. Howdy. Uh, Rex's research focuses on applying advanced technologies to research problems in the social sciences and policy world, particularly on issues, issues of human conflict. Rob Monroe is a former guest of the podcast and a longtime friend of the show. He's currently CEO of Machine Learning Consulting. Hi, Rob. Hey, everyone. Rob has extensive experience in crowdsourced data, disaster response, and the intersection of these areas. Leah Shanley is a senior fellow with the Nelson Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she focuses on open science, innovation strategy, and policy responsible AI and data ethics, and expanding diversity in data science. Welcome, Leah. 
And Gigi Yuan Reed is a distinguished engineer and executive responsible for data science innovations in the healthcare space at IBM, with an emphasis on the use of predictive models in clinical applications. Hi, Gigi. All righty, so let's jump right in and get started with a round of questions so that we can get to know our panelists a little bit better. Uh, we'll start with you, Rex. You recently wrote an interesting piece on how to be curious instead of contrarian about COVID-19, eight data science lessons from a coronavirus perspective. Without necessarily going into the specific lessons that you present in that article, uh, we'll come back to those. Tell us a little bit about the origin of that article and what prompted you to write it and how that relates to your work at MSSL. Sure. So the big idea is that <clears throat> my note is ostensibly a takedown of a specific piece that Richard Epstein wrote, posted to Hoover, where he predicted only 500 deaths in the U.S. and made a long list of other false and sophist arguments. Uh, in reality, though, my note is a Trojan horse uh, intended to try to sneak some basic social science research design methods to a broader audience who may not otherwise receive that kind of information. Uh, I wanted to show by example that uh, these kind of gatekeeping or lane keeping arguments are themselves another kind of anti-intellectualism. I argue that during a crisis, it's exactly when we should be encouraging people to become more curious and more scientifically rigorous. Right now, a good chunk of the planet actually wants to know about causal inference and about confidence intervals and about Bayes' rule. And for God's sakes, we should be telling them, uh, especially before theaters reopen. <laughs> awesome. Rob, a lot of your perspective on this issue comes from your experience working in disaster response. Uh, share with us a little bit about your background in this area and the concerns that it raises for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I worked as a disaster responder for, for about 20 years, for about the same time that I've been working as a, as a data scientist. Um, and in every major disaster that I've responded to, um, I've seen people die as a result of people cutting corners, um, uh, including uh, actions taken by, by well-meaning data scientists, uh, often grabbing media attention when, when experts uh, should have had that attention. Um, but uh, like I've also said, uh, I think uh, some of the biggest impact I've had is, is not when I've been working in, in refugee camps or, or directly for disaster response. Some of the biggest impact I've had has been when I've been at large companies. Uh, so I ran AWS's NLP service for a while, Amazon Comprehend. And it's when I've been working with large companies like that and getting them to expand into more languages and think about general ways that tools can be adapted to different parts of the world. Uh, I think that that's built, built a foundational layer that um, I'm seeing right now. Uh, a lot of people responding to COVID using. Uh, so I'd love to, to share on this panel um, some of the ways that you can take your existing skills as, as data scientists and, and help plug gaps in the COVID response. Awesome. Uh, Leah, much of your work, uh, including co-founding citizenscience.gov, has focused on encouraging everyday citizens to get involved in science and help accelerate innovations in this country. Uh, my guess is that scientists don't always welcome the input of the quote unquote unwashed masses. Can you share a little bit about your experience in this area? Uh, well, like Rob, I've worked at the intersection and served as a connector between the academic research community, the tech innovation community, crowdsourcers, citizen scientists, and disaster management practitioners. Um, like Rob, uh, over the last 10 years, we saw a lot of enthusiasm and well-meaning, uh, you know, open data, data scientists, 
and others try to contribute and innovate in the middle of a crisis, uh, but they lacked an understanding of what the disaster response community actually needed on the ground. And so, uh, you know, we tried to work to build that bridge between the practitioners, the research community, and the digital volunteers. For citizen science and crowdsourcing, yes. Uh, one of the first questions we get when, when we propose uh, crowdsourcing or citizen science approaches is, what about data quality? And that uh, field has become rather mature, and there are a lot of great approaches now for assuring uh, the data quality levels that you need for a project, just as you would with any scientific research or data analysis. Awesome. And Gigi, your work at IBM involves what you describe as translational science, so translating between cutting-edge machine learning and AI research and making that accessible and scalable to uh, your customer and, and end users. Can you share a little bit about your experience coming from the clinical informatics side of things and how that applies to COVID? Yeah, it's a very interesting time. I think mm-hmm. based on my experience in trying to take cutting-edge technologies to our end users, sometimes a very sophisticated clinician or um, a, a consumer who's trying to understand the risk for the health problem. Um, thinking through that, you know, really, really drive home the need for transparency. I think um, Leah and, and Res and Rob, you all kind of touch upon that, right? The fact that um, we got to be transparent, not only on, on the data and its quality, but the assumptions that we can use. Mm-hmm. I think that tends to get um, overlooked by the end user. And it is our responsibility to make sure we work with the domain experts to, to validate those assumptions. So that's kind of the biggest piece that I'm advocating. I do think data science, that's a lot we can do, even to overcome right, the issues of data security, privacy, and how to leverage um, the streaming data from IoT. I think that's a lot we can contribute on. Um, it's a matter of how to restrict the balance. So once again, I want to remind our uh, viewers to contribute questions via the chat. We will incorporate those into the conversation. Um, but I'd like to start out really exploring the idea of you know what's at stake when data scientists get involved and talk through your examples of you know where you've seen help, where you've seen harm, and uh, what folks are really worried about when you know they kind of push out the their arms and say, hey, data scientists shouldn't really you know, be involved in this without working with domain experts, whether that be epidemiologists, virologists, uh, what have you. I'll I'll let you start with this, Rob, and then we'll, um, you know, incorporate uh, others. Sure, happy to. So uh, for a start, this isn't new. Uh, It's not new that we're seeing data scientists step into disaster response efforts. Uh, And we have a lot of uh, past examples already where there have been very negative effects. Uh, So I'll give three examples. Uh, I also presented all three of these at the KDD conference last year, one of the largest data science conferences. Um, So these should already be part of the the dialogue that that people are having around data scientists responding to disasters. Um, You know, this this is not something new. Uh, And if you haven't read the papers and and the dangers in the past, uh, you should think carefully about the, the kind of work that you're undertaking. Uh, so one of the um, the biggest negative impacts I've seen was during the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa. Uh, having worked in um, epidemic tracking and having lived in West Africa in the past, I did a lot of work advising on this. And one of the, the biggest causes for unneeded deaths were data scientists in the West coming up with 
really like doomsday prediction models about how bad Ebola could be. Uh, and so the the people who were going on the, the big media programs during the Ebola outbreak, they weren't the professional epidemiologists. These were, were data scientists from adjacent fields, and the media just eats up this story like this could kill us all. Uh, so as a result of the international pressure uh, from the media, filled by, by people who did not have that expertise, but who looked like they were experts, um, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of people being too scared. And so we calculated that for every person who died from Ebola in West Africa, 10 more people died from treatable illnesses because they were avoiding hospitals and clinics uh, unnecessarily. Um, so this was a, you know, a very clear example of where so many people died uh, because of misinformation that, that started from, from well-meaning non-experts. Some of the others relate to, to open data and, and data security, like, like people have mentioned already. So when I was helping respond to the previous uh, coronavirus uh, outbreaks, the SARS-CoV-1 or MERS, we found that um, because a lot of these outbreaks were in countries um, where the rule of law is very different to the West, people going in with different assumptions. Uh, so, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia wanted to find people in social media who were reporting the actual numbers of, of patients in hospitals that might have differed from the, um, the official government numbers. Uh, and we evaluated this at that time and, and decided that even if this project was well-meaning and even if it only used open data from, from people's public tweets, uh, these people could be seen as disagreeing with the government um, and could be persecuted as a result. Um, and so we decided not to go forward uh, with this particular project. Um, and then uh, the last of three examples, uh, also working in the Middle East uh, during the uprising in Libya when Gaddafi was overthrown, uh, I was helping the UN track displaced people. So it seems like a use case that just should just be very um, non-controversial, like who's um, internally displaced or a refugee in another country and, and needs help. Uh, but people uh, within the region saw the UN's involvement as being a Western involvement. Uh, and our security was compromised, and uh, some people treated as collaborators with a Western invader, uh, not as people helping um, humanitarian efforts. Um, and again, this was like uh, set up by um, by data scientists who didn't have a background in disaster response, uh, like technologists who thought they could do good, um, and ultimately did did far more harm than good. So those are three very negative examples. I'll I'll. Pass it over to the other panelists here. I, I do want to assure everyone watching though, that I do have a lot of good examples of ways that people are helping and, and can help that I want to come back to. I want to second Rob's comments. We saw the same thing working the disaster space curation of social media for you know who needs medical care, who needs water, who needs rescue, et cetera. And it's not just in other countries. It's here in the U.S. We're seeing retaliations against certain popu vulnerable populations. So while we espouse open data, I think we need to be careful and, as Gigi mentioned, ensure the privacy and security, particularly around vulnerable populations. Yeah, and, and this conversation reminds me of um, it's about six months ago, right, um, where there is a commonly used population health analytics to help stratify individuals for intervention right, to prevent um, hospital readmission, where that work was built upon a national, national data set right, to understand individuals' health risk. Um, but what was overlooked is the fact that the training data set was biased. Like certain demographics tend to have richer data than other. Mm -hmm. um, the mathematics were great. Um, the sensitivities, specificity were high quality. Unfortunately, that's a piece of like, data bias that we overlook. Uh, and, and that's a piece that we should really think through, right? Because the um, pandemic is really evolving very quickly. Um, every local county has very different um, data completion right, and data coverage. 
So as data scientists, I think it's our responsibility to really think hard about what is the data that we bring into our models and being very hyper-localized, right? Um, what are the strengths and weaknesses of different data? If we don't keep that in mind and have the discipline to do the bias and um, diversity check at the end, um, we could we could um, really further advance the imbalance in healthcare. So I think it, it, it's those are some great examples, Rob, and it's clear, I think, to everyone that the stakes are high. Uh, I'm curious for you, Rex, based on a conversation from a, a comment you made in our earlier conversation, um, you know, when a lot of people, you know, see these kinds of, you know, or think of these kinds of potential harms, you know, the immediate reaction is, well, if you don't have a epidemiology degree or a virology degree, you shouldn't be involved. You should, you know, take a, a backseat um, to, you know, the experts, um, you know, you're a data scientist who is involved in in this work, but you don't have a degree in epidemiology or a background in disaster response. You know, how does that, uh, you know, occur for you? And, you know, how have you reacted to those ki- that kind of commentary? So the, the way I tried to lay out the piece is to make an argument that the, the difference between good work and bad work is not uh, your level of expertise in that field or the strength of the quality of your priors. I define science as a curiosity about the true state of the world and the application of evidence and methods to form truer beliefs than we held yesterday. And that's that holds for every level of skill and every kind of question or form of empirical inquiry we could form. And there are parts about COVID that the experts don't under, don't understand currently there are things we'd like to know about what's going to happen in the future that almost no one understands, and these are probabilistic forecasts. Uh, there are smaller things that individuals would like to understand, like of the expert recommendations, which ones should I follow? What happens when they contradict each other? What assumptions are the models making, and are they getting better or worse over time? How do I be a smarter consumer of expert information? And I don't know a single scientist, no matter what field, they're in who isn't climbing up the walls right now trying to understand this global pandemic and how it affects them, how it affects their family, what they can contribute or better understand themselves. And so my my big takeaway is that it, we're not going to be able to prevent bad work through gatekeeping. The people who are doing bad work before COVID are doing bad work now and will do bad work in the future. What we can try to do is we can try to encourage people to be curious and methodologically rigorous, and then keep giving them concrete examples and feedback to positively support them on that journey as they move up the curve. Hey, earlier, you brought up uh, a couple of examples of, uh, you know, even the so-called experts, the epidemiologists, credentialed epide- epidemiologists, um, publishing studies that were later shown to be, um, you know, later taken down. Uh, can you mention a couple of those? Sure. So uh, there's a really good paper called Learning As We Go, which does sensitivity analysis on that IHME, uh, Institute for Health and Metrics Evaluation uh, forecast. Uh, That is an example of a a credentialed group, according to the lane keepers, uh, who's producing the most culturally dominant forecast in the U.S. right now. Uh, But their 95% confidence intervals are right only about 27% of the time. And the, 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 their accuracy doesn't improve when you shorten the time horizon for their predictions. 
And if you actually eyeball the confidence intervals, they get more confident the further out in time they go. And there's all sorts of problems with their model and all sorts of weird assumptions. But this kind of picking apart someone else's work, if you have a background in statistics or causal inference or research design, anyone with that training can start to see the, the pieces and understand the underlying problems and maybe contribute some feedback and some review that will help others in picking between models. Just because they were first to the, to the, to the pitch or they uh, were able to culturally position themselves as the most influential forecast doesn't mean that they're the only forecast within epidemiology. And it doesn't mean that we should just accept them because they're credentialed. So we had a really interesting question come in via the chat. Uh, David Clement is referring to the peer review process that you know we've historically used in academic publications to ensure the quality of research. You know, what's the role of, of peer review and why or why isn't it helping in this uh, environment? I can, I can speak to that uh, briefly. So um, peer review is absolutely helping in, in this environment. Um, in many disasters in the past, which came on much faster than, than COVID, um, there was no advantage in cutting the corners of science. Uh, so the, the science itself couldn't be rushed. Um, the, uh, what can be sped up is the, the review process itself. Um, and so this is something that, that I have seen different in COVID to previous disasters, I think because it is so global, uh, that a lot of major publications are speeding up this process and, and letting it be open. Uh, so, for example, at the, the largest computational linguistics conference, uh, ACL, which is coming up, uh, there's now a workshop specifically focused on COVID. Uh, it's uh, open review. Uh, so it's allowing itself to be the right place for these kinds of discussions to happen. And papers are being reviewed on a rolling basis. Um, so uh, as quickly as possible, um, as soon as they're being submitted. Uh, so we've been able to really speed up a, a process that, you know, I've taken nine months waiting for the right conference to, to come around in the past and, and, and bring it down to a couple of weeks without cutting corners on the science itself. Uh, so it's been great to see that uh, across a lot of different disciplines at the moment. And Leah, when you've worked to scale up these kinds of citizen science efforts, have you incorporated or how, what kind of review processes or checks and balances or peer review have you been able to incorporate into uh, those kind of programs? Uh, well, with citizen science, you would go through the same kind of peer review that you would with any scientific research if the intent is to do scientific research versus, say, strictly education. So you would you would still you know produce published papers that go through the normal peer review process, and in fact uh, these days a lot of citizen science projects are including the citizen scientist as co-authors on those papers, and in some open uh, peer review process you know people can contribute to the peer review as well. Um, I want to tag on though to Rob's comment uh, about uh, you know a lot of this preprints of the research is being made available and speeding up the peer review, uh, the White House has issued a call to action to the tech community. Um, they've made, uh, the publishers have made um, the literature now uh, openly available around COVID. They've made a, a team of different organizations have, have gotten together, including Microsoft, the National Library of Medicine, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, uh, to make that, those articles machine readable. So they now have 29,000 scholarly articles on COVID that are machine readable. The White House now would like the data science community to develop uh, text and data mining techniques 
to help speed up, uh, you know, synthesizing these materials. Um, and they are also provided a set of research questions uh, to help guide some of that. And that is available on Kaggle. So Ayadele gets us to our core question, you know, what can data scientists do to help? And she's specifically asking for resources, but I think there's a lot to dig into just uh, on, you know, what are things that data scientists need to be thinking about when they're uh, considering getting involved? Rob, do you want to get us started on that one? Yeah, sure. I, I can go through a laundry list of things which are which are really important and, and for which there are very little negative consequences. There's a lot of ways that you can jump in and help um, uh, without potentially endangering people. Uh, so content moderation is huge. If, if you work at a large company doing content moderation or if you want to take one of the existing open data sets, uh, that's really important. Um, so obviously there's a big NLP component to it. Uh, but also computer vision. Uh, so, for example, a lot of even the bigger companies right now can't do matching on a fake news image if there's it's cropped slightly differently or it's like in, in you know envelope uh, format, etc. Um, so there's some low-hanging fruit there um, that already exists in open data sets that any research w- would help us. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, during any disaster, while crime goes down in general, um, and some particularly nasty people. Um, uh, ramp up in, in scams and exploitation, especially exploitation of minors. Um, so again, if you're working in content moderation or content health um, and you're able to identify uh, scam artists or, or people looking to exploit children, uh, that's incredibly uh, important right now. And again, there's some existing initiatives uh, for that. Um, uh, any work in low resource languages is is really valuable right now. So the majority of calls that I've had with um, organizations like, like uh, WHO, uh, have been especially worried about how to get information out, how to start using natural language processing um, in low resource languages. They're, they're not captured in any of the, the large libraries that we have. Um, some of the existing open source data sets that I've helped create for disaster response have low resource languages. So any research into those would be valuable. Um, you see them in uh, AI for all. Um, some Stanford MIT classes have used them. Uh, Udacity's nano degree in data science uh, uses a, a data set that I created too. Uh, any of that research would be valuable. Um, and then there's just like a, a ton of things around the edges. Like cleaning data is always valuable. Like, I mean, if you, you know, if you turned up to volunteer at your local hospital, um, you're not going to be invited in to do surgery. But you might be given a mop and bucket. Um, you know, expect the same thing. If you, if you turn up to... analogy. Yeah. So if, if you turn up to a big organization, they're not, they're not going to be sitting there with a well-structured data set ready to go and they just need, you know, 10 lines of PyTorch. Um, but data cleaning is really important. Sanitation in a hospital is, is equally as, as important, um, especially at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, like that's how I started out for years, just doing all the grunt work in disaster response. And it, it's a very um, noble and valuable way to, to start. The last example, um, anything around um, uh, supply and logistics. Uh, so there, there is no world database of who has what kinds of, of medical supplies. And a lot of the world governments are now implementing really like basic crawlers and machine learning systems to work out who has a supply of medical masks or, or respirators and, and, and things like this. And in almost any disaster response, uh, the supplies and logistics component of it ends up being the biggest part of it, the most complicated part. Um, and there's a, a ton of, of machine learning in, in supply, um, supply chains and logistics. But not enough because it hasn't been a popular area for people to research. And, and again, like any research in this area would be really valuable for, for those of us in, in disaster response. 
Uh, Anthony Garland asks, what's the role of IoT devices in this pandemic? He's speaking specifically about personal IoT devices and health trackers like uh, Fitbit. But Gigi, I'm wondering, you know, either personal or kind of uh, within hospitals and healthcare systems or other IoT use cases, are, are there uh, interesting opportunities for data scientists that arise in the intersection of COVID and IoT? There's, I think, two aspects to it, right, in terms of personal IoT device, right? One is there's a lot of interest around better understanding of social policy, social distancing adherence. Are people actually following the orders or guidelines by the local government? So the personal IoT device has rich, rich data to support that. Um, But of course, we've got to be vigilant with the security and privacy. Um, But we do, we are seeing um, there's a strong correlation to adherence to some of the um, disease curves, right? So I think that's an area that will be of interest. Um, another area will be um, to help support some of the um, symptom checks, right? Um, as opposed to trying to get on a phone call and talk to someone and understand their symptoms and putting it in the CDC website, there's a lot of opportunities in leveraging the data that's being collected in these um, personal um, fitness devices to help um, supplement that. Or mm-hmm. think about, you know, um, the fever monitoring devices, um, think about, especially for one of the high-risk um, group is folks with hypertension and diabetes. Right? What about those IoT devices? How can it be incorporated to help um, detect people at um, high risk? And Trace Together is another one where they're looking at the connectivity is who's exposed to whom. And uh, yeah, but doing it in a privacy way that that secures people's privacy but alerts them if they've been exposed potentially to people who've been diagnosed yeah yeah um yeah that's a great one in in fact i just um had a ethics (laughs) conversation internally in ibm how to how to handle that um as you you may have seen in the latest white house guidance um there's a point to ask employer um to support the employees contact tracing so if you and i have gone to work and um and the next day we should be alerted by our employer if someone else on my floor has been tested positive in COVID. So how do we do that um, while protecting the individual privacy mm-hmm. the insurability? Uh, so Rob, you took on that question of how can data scientists help from a use case perspective? You know, Rex, maybe you can take it on from a um, practices perspective. Sure. Um, there, well, there's, there's two big ways that... Um, at least our shop is trying to contribute, and I think are low-hanging fruit and opportunities for other people uh, in this space. The first is in the aggregation of existing data, not just cleaning, but munging different data sources together creates a lot of problems. And my shop, uh, day-to-day, we're a knowledge graph shop that works on aggregating conflict panel data or political science data measured across countries or localities And so when COVID counts started coming out of confirmed deaths, number of tests, it looked just like the the data we were working with already. And so we've rapidly been prototyping a system to aggregate all of the COVID data globally at at least a province or state level and preferably below. So we're up to about 300,000 observations, a couple dozen data sets. And doing that kind of work is something I think any, any data science shop can contribute to. Uh, the other one is evaluation of models and predictions. If there's anything ML people know how to do, it's how to create a test set and take a split 
<laughs> and uh, I just want to do a shout out for one project I know of. Uh, Nicholas Reich's lab at UMass Amherst has been collecting the predictions and forecasts from different groups, normalizing them, putting them into the same sheet, and then seeing how they perform over time and even creating an ensemble prediction based on all of them. And that is something we can immediately start trying to do is evaluate and combine the forecasts we have already. And the faster we do that, the more the more informed decisions we'll be able to make in the next couple months about reopening uh, in the U.S. or other places. Any other takes on that? Things that data scientists need to be thinking about when they're uh, considering jumping in and, and helping out? Listening to the panelists, right, two things come to mind. I think, Rob, your earlier point about um, NLP. Um, in addition to helping with um, clinical and genomic um, discovery, right, looking at the various um, literature, that there is a strong um, desire to better understand local government's policy. It's changing on a daily basis. In order for us, you know, to build robust models, we had to look across geography while really being careful about local differences. So if we could um, spend more time enabling policy insights to the NLP, it could be very valuable. GovLab did kind of a rapid assessment of different topic areas that could be looked at and proposed at least 12 areas going beyond tracking disease spread and supply chain of the PPE to protecting human rights and promoting accountability, you know, oversight of governments uh, and their actions with COVID, uh, alleviating pandemic related unemployment and poverty, uh, education and upskilling, uh, identifying which businesses may be at most risk and helping inform policymakers of that as they make their decisions. And uh, as we talked to, together in the pre, pre-planning meeting, identifying and tracking misinformation. So misinformation is, uh, you know, didn't come up in uh, specifically in talking about some of the potential harms, but it's kind of the backdrop of a lot of the, you know, angst that comes up in this conversation you know, any specific examples of misinformation or disinformation relating to to COVID that uh, any of you have seen? Yeah, I, I've seen a lot related to, um, I guess, basically you could you could call folk remedies, and, and that's in, in every every country in the world. Um, so whether it's something with no known benefits like like homeopathy here in um, in the United States or other uh, local remedies um, in, in other parts of the world. Uh, this happens in, in, in every disaster and in, in, in every disease outbreak. Um, it can be very dangerous when that misinformation relates to, to poisonous things. Uh, so as soon as we introduce something like bleach as a cleaning agent in any disaster, we we know some percent of people are going to drink it. Um, uh, as what happened with, uh, I think it was chloroquine or certainly some other quinine uh, derivative here where uh, people drank it um, who didn't even observe symptoms and then and people died. You know, often on the back of well-meaning people, people who think there are solutions or there are types of, of um, protective measures um, which they believe are way better or way worse um, than they truly are. And, and this becomes the, the biggest worry for us when uh, celebrities get behind it uh, because no public health organization can compete, you know, with, uh, with a Hollywood celebrity with tens of millions of, of followers on, on social media. Um, it's like it's really tough for us when... Uh, a lot of these celebrities um, will double down, um, you know, maybe on on remedies that, that they have a financial uh, stake in, like that stupid goo product. Uh, and so that's uh, that's where we see like a, a lot of the danger, uh, because you know we 
we can't compete with the, uh, those kinds of people in social media. And a lot of them are being kicked off um, social media. YouTube and Facebook especially have been great at this. Um, but it's always trailing. Um, the damage is often being done by, by the time this content gets removed. I think they also thought that 5G uh, <laughs> was causing coronavirus. So people were burning down the 5G towers. Um, there's an organization, NewsGuard, which has a misinformation tracker around COVID. And I think the Credibility Coalition and the MisinfoCon folks are also uh, have efforts in this regard. Mm. Yeah, so I think as a, as a data scientist, this is one area where you can use your critical judgment. Um, similar to what Rex was saying earlier, you know what a good report what versus a bad report looks like. You should be able to evaluate uh, objectively whether a, a public official has experience in this area, whether they're, they're calling on peer-reviewed articles when they present their evidence uh, versus someone who's sharing their anecdotal experience. Um, and, and as the data scientist in your family, you probably have a better critical thinking capacity than, than most other people. And so helping your family um, become better critical thinkers um, and, and how to evaluate any advice skeptically and, and, and choose the best advice when there's conflicting advice, that, that's a really valuable thing that, that you can do in your community. There's also a big need for data scientists in this research space. So when I ran the big one of the big data innovation hubs for the National Science Foundation, we had a community of 100 uh, researchers, data scientists, digital anthropologists, political scientists, all bringing to bear their different disciplines to understand, track, and, and develop mitigation strategies for misinformation. You know, I, I would like to comment too. Um, sometimes the information is true, but it's not applicable to your situation. I think that's the piece that I tend to see often. Um, for instance, right, we, we hear how a lot of local hospitals are having resource shortage, right? Um, patients have to be turned away, or um, there's been a call to ask non-critical or elective um, surgeries to take a pause, right? And it's very, it really dependent on the local health system. And we are seeing that there are acute conditions that shouldn't have gone down are going down in areas. Like there are less heart attack, um, there's less asthma attack, and, and there's less trauma cases. And, and in some sense, it, it could make sense because people are not traveling as much, but the rate of decrease is a little alarming. Right. So um, hospital resource shortage doesn't apply to your local area. I think that's, you know, we got to help um, our community think through that. Um, it's true, perhaps in one city, it's still true for the way I live and my, my family is on. We started off talking about examples of the potential harms, but what about uh, specific examples of where data science is helping out and making an impact? Leah, you had a few. <laughs> There's like, there are lots of different opportunities, I think, for data scientists and, and other data-related uh, folks to plug in in very positive ways. I, I think in our discussions, we talk about you not only need the data science at the table, but you need the epidemiologists, the virologists, the immunologists, uh, economists, and other kinds of professionals. So there's several opportunities where they're bringing these kind of teams of folks together. Uh, MIT COVID Challenge is one where they're looking at uh, innovating uh, using data and other approaches for solutions in Africa. Uh, the DevPost Global Hackathon is another place. We'll put provide those links afterwards. Uh, they've got, I think, something like 18,000 people signed up to contribute. The U.S. Digital Response uh, Team, which is started by some former White House uh, Deputy Chief Technology Officers, has now got over 4,000 volunteers and they're pairing those data science, backend engineers, uh, product managers uh, with local government folks 
to help you know build websites, things that are free, open source, and extensible or replicable to other locations. Um, and then in the citizen science space, we've got uh, folding at home, which is using distributed computing. So if you want to like study at home, you know, donate your computing resources to help uh, solve some of the medical challenges around COVID. Uh, there's the coronavirus binder design game, which is developed by Foldit. So we've got uh, serious gamers figuring out how a protein related to coronavirus uh, works and figuring out how they might disrupt that protein. Uh, Eterna is another one of these online series games that requires some complex problem solving that having a data scientist help probably would be helpful. And then, you know, as I think Gigi mentioned, it's, it's, there's not just COVID we have to worry about, but now we've got some fabulous air quality, right? So doing things like monitoring air quality, doing things like monitoring water quality, it's Earth Day. And, you know, how is this impact of COVID on our environment? There's a big opportunity for folks with IoT skills, data science skills, Earth observation, geospatial mapping to help with those efforts too. Other examples of uh, where data scientists, you know, non-epidemiologists, uh, virologists are jumping in and, and adding value? So uh, no one, no one's mentioned kind of the efforts from journalism and a lot of newspapers have data scientists on staff now. So I just wanted to point out that um, the main source of tracking for testing in the U.S. is the COVID tracking project, which came out of uh, an effort by the Atlantic and two journalists. Um, in India, COVID-19 India is a massive crowdsourced effort. Um, if you go on GitHub, you can go country name by country name and find at least one you know, data scientist or beginner who has started scraping the local health ministry website and getting unstructured data into a structured form that we can then use. Mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the main comparisons here is not between uh, epidemiologists and expert scientific experts and civilians or data scientists or you know, amateurs. It's between uh, government resources and capabilities and the civilian uh, capital, social capital to work on that. So. If the New York Times is the one who's putting together county level counts of COVID in the U.S. and not the federal government, that tells you something, right? New York Times and Reuters are both tracking that at the county level because there isn't a strong federal system with reporting all the way up the chain and all the way down the chain. It's newspapers collating this information for us. And so we have to step in where the institutions fall short, uh, and that can only be done by regular people. David Clement asked another uh, really interesting question about how the role of data science shifts as this pandemic continues. You know, early efforts have been involved in modeling and dashboards and the like, but what does the role of data science need to evolve to as time goes on? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I can I can speak to some part of it. I certainly can't speak for, for all the data science and, and, and how it can respond. One of the, the most constant things I'm seeing working with really large organizations doing public health and, um, and, and misinformation is uh, the areas where we can get help from, from data scientists. Uh, so almost all the systems I'm looking at don't have much data to begin with, and they need to bootstrap from, from not many examples. Uh, so human-in-the-loop systems, smart active learning, adapting to low-resource languages with, with inconsistent spellings and more complicated suffixes and prefixes. Um, lots of really important problems that just aren't part of what most data scientists learn. Uh, most data scientists will 
learn about purely automated methods where the data is constant and, and the data is never constant in, um, in disaster response. Um, so again, a lot of the things that might look useful for um, you know, multilingual NLP, like zero-shot learning, really aren't that useful. Um, zero-shot learning requires a fairly large unsupervised, unchanging corpus, and the, the percentage difference doesn't, doesn't change a whole lot. Um, what we need more is uh, people who can think about the productization, um, uh, human-in-the-loop systems, um, where uh, it's the, the human, either expert or, or non-expert, um, for example, giving medical advice, um, who can look up a database of maybe the right answers and, and, and give that advice. And so this is one of the areas that I've been given advice to. So a lot of major companies working in this area um, have been introduced to a lot of data scientists. So data scientists at all the big tech companies are willing to step up and, and do the right work. Um, but they're getting introduced to the wrong people. They're getting introduced to someone who can do a cutting-edge paper in zero-shot or one-shot learning. Um, whereas actually the, the data scientists who probably have the best knowledge, uh, they work in, in content moderation um, or they help out um, with customer success um, uh, for, for customer service systems. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of that human-computer interaction side of data science, which I, th I find really fascinating, um, you know, I, I think that becomes way more useful in, in a disaster response environment. And I would love to see more people uh, picking that up. Gigi, I think you had uh, something to add to this one. Yeah, I was smiling because um, less on the, the technology aspect, but as we think through the use cases, as many countries are trying to figure out how to recover and get back to the new normal, I think um, you have to think through like care delivery will not be the same anymore, right? Half of the care today in America is delivered through telemedicine. And I think that's statistically even be higher than that. Um, so what can we do as data scientists to help improve um, not only monitoring, but the experience with, between the clinician and the patient as they are uh, no longer able to physically touch, right? So the science of haptics can come in, the science of how... Um, we share and transmit monitoring data, all, all that comes in. And, and, and another we had that a lot of us were as, as a teacher, right? As an educator, um, we'll be delivering our um, education material in a very different way. Um, how can we make that more interactive? And, um, and how can we learn from, imagine the data that we're collecting in this online system. How can we learn from that and really provide a much more rich experience for our um, students? So, so my mind actually went in a way of, okay, in a new normal, um, not only in health, but in many, many disciplines, um, there are a lot of opportunities for us. Yeah, the idea of the new normal is an interesting one. I saw an article the other day that talked about how uh, in Milan, they're taking advantage of the change in the traffic situation in the core city to implement some pro uh, cycling measures. So they're going to be reducing the vehicular traffic in the city core and adding bike lanes and things like that. And the, the new normal is going to be new and it will provide a lot of opportunities for folks to jump in and help with the kind of modeling that they've done in non-epidemiology domains. So we've got a, a number of questions that have come in that relate to uh, the kind of data that, you know, that we're seeing uh, being published by media and experts talking about, um, I, I think a lot of these questions are getting at kind of the couple of things, a, a lack of confidence on the part of the information consumer as in terms of what media we can trust, as well as the rapidity with which viewpoints are changing. We've got 
folks showing data on different sides of, you know, the utility of masks and the position that local governments and organizations like uh, WHO CDC is shifting over time. We've got similar types of, uh, you know, data on different sides of social distancing. Any thoughts on like cutting through the these different perspectives and more importantly, how do data scientists help their communities cut through these different perspectives? Well, I, I'd say be very wary of the media for one. Uh, you know, um, you know, most journalists are great people and they want to report things honestly, but media companies are not aligned with providing you the um, the most important information that that you need. Um, you know, a lot of media companies have the same narratives in every disaster, and it's that the, the responders aren't doing the right job. Why is this being ignored? Uh, why did somebody cover this up? Uh, why is there a conspiracy here? Uh, and even and even when journalists know that they um, it's not a real story. It's part of the narrative they have to tell. And you can be smart about this. If you see stories come out and um, there's no author um, uh, in a big publication, that they normally know that they're, they're spreading misinformation uh, or they get an invited expert opinion who is no expert at all um, to say something outrageous. Um, but it can be, yeah, it can be tough. Um, I mean, I haven't said that, like, like, I mean, like Rex said, like some of the the most useful sources of information have come from uh, data scientists and journalists working together. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll flag that there's a lot of variety. Um, but, um, yeah, the media is, is is tough to trust a lot of the time. So you mentioned working with local communities. I, I had mentioned the U.S. Digital Response, which is working with local government. But there are other examples like the Data Science Federation in Southern California. Uh, that was started by Gene Holm, who's uh, in the CIO's office at the city of Los Angeles. And they've partnered with uh, 18 universities and organizations in the area. So the students and faculty and staff are working closely with the city. You know, students and faculty and the other uh, volunteers bring the data science expertise. The city brings the, the problem space, the use cases where they need that help. And that's kind of a local on the ground uh, use case. You know, I was listening to you, Rob, and, and I think, what, what do I do, right? What do I advise myself and my children to do when you're exposed to this different um, news channel and information? I think the first thing I go to, of course, the author and the citation. I think the second thing I would advise folks to pay attention to is the metric. You can very quickly tell the thoughtfulness of the numbers behind the scene in how they report the metric, right? It's just the number of cases or number of cases per capita. That is a very simple example, but many, many, many ways you can ask you if you focus on metrics that's being used and being reported, and you ask yourself, mm, <laughs> is this translatable? I think that it's a, a, a good um, indicator for me. A corollary is to, uh, to look at the uh, y axis of the graph and whether the uh, numbers are jumping around like some of the ones that we've seen going around. <laughs> There's been some interesting variations on, on log scales. I thought that was complicated. I, I was going to about to say, check and see if there's a log scale <laughs> and check the units, right? I mean, things that you learn in elementary school, it's very, very relevant. Well, that there's even a scale. Like if, there, if there's not a scale in the first place, that's, that's really good yeah. indication that it's something going on. That's a different story, so, yeah. So, so one, one... I, think, I think it's actually, if I could make one point, right? I think that's a piece that some of us could over, overlook ourselves, right? Um, especially com coming into a new field, what is the right metric to use? What is the right, right. scaling factor to use? We've got to be thoughtful of that and, and coach folks we, we work with. One quick point on this um, that I raise in my piece is that 
not just the media, but some of these political actors are producing speech that they know is wrong or they're, they, they're incurious about what the right answer is. They just have to produce a particular viewpoint. And their mistake here is to try to respond to that point for point. Uh, there's something called the Gish Gallup, which is a, uh, Gish a debating, yeah, it's a debating tactic where you just spam bad arguments as quickly as you can because the time it takes to explain why those are wrong is longer than it takes to make the argument in the first place. And so we have we have a risk here where um, certain media or certain political actors are producing false speech at a rate faster than we could possibly debunk it. And frankly, we if you're if you're an expert in these fields, you shouldn't be spending your time debunking this. You should be producing work and getting us to the right answer independently. So the only response that I found has either been uh, through speech like comedy and satire, where The Daily Show used to take apart bad arguments for you uh, in a very creative way quickly, or through positive education. Like, we have to provide scientific literacy to our families and to our population so that they can tell a bad argument no matter which day or year or decade it's made in on what topic. That's getting it at the bud is the only way to protect them. It's like a vaccine against bullshit. And it's our it's the only hope. Otherwise, you'll you'll bankrupt yourself trying to go beat for beat with these people. Uh, on the satire front, there was an article uh, that was responding to another article that purported that public transportation was one of the uh, key spreaders of the virus in New York City uh, based on correlation between um you know, I forget what the specifics were when the city shut down and public transit usage or some random correlation. And the uh, a satirist, an author, basically took the same argument and, and article and uh, rewrote it with the correlation being to bike sharing using the bike sharing data. Just poke fun at the, the argument. Uh, we're coming up to the top of the hour. I want to take another couple of audience questions to help us close out. So Megan asks a question referring to COVID-19 data sets, but brings up uh, the broader issue of bias. And uh, this relates to something that you opened up with, Gigi, uh, as well as the idea of transparency. Uh, can you uh, speak a little bit to the importance of uh, bias and transparency and things that we need to be thinking about both uh, generally and when dealing with these data sets? Yes. Absolutely. Um, really being, it's a gate, I call it the gating requirement. It's supposed to take a look at the completeness, coverage, and um, distribution of your data, right? And, and I think it's more than important, especially when we're dealing with public health situation, to consider the dimensions of not just demographic groups, um, but different uh, local um, diversity um, sets. So I think that's the piece that we're very passionate about. And secondarily, I'll go beyond just the data set. I think it goes back to my earlier point about being transparent on the assumptions that we are making. It's amazing, right? If you look at an epidemiology model, if you include asymptomatic patient or if you don't include asymptomatic patient, you could get a two to three times differences in results. If you don't mention that to your reader, then I think we're not doing our job. So transparency in data and transparency in assumptions. Any additional thoughts from our panel on uh, bias and transparency or data sets? Uh, stay tuned. We're working on a piece called uh, How to Be Careful with COVID Counts that's going to investigate that question exactly. 
And um, <clears throat> if I could add one thing, right? Um, um, it's interesting how we often report on cases and deaths as opposed to recoveries. Um, it's also interesting um, how we don't report on testing availability and at that being a driver of what we see in the results. So I think all of that, I look forward to the article. Bernard asks, uh, and this is a great question to help us wrap up. Is there a responsible data science 101 out there that folks can go to and have a look at? I start with the article I wrote about five ways that data scientists can help and, and five mistakes uh, to avoid. Uh, there's a lot of links in there if you want to do deeper reading about things that worked and things that didn't work in the past. Too. And Rex's article as well. Uh, and in fact, we'll link to all of these articles and other resources that have been mentioned this, in this conversation and that the, our panelists uh, have to share on the uh, program page for this, which is at twomalai.com slash rdscovid. Matum asks uh, about that term that you used, uh, Rex, in the context of debating. We'll get that in there as well. Um, but at this point, I'd like to thank all of our panel for participating in this uh, great discussion. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.